Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I also have a blog that you can check out, and that can be found at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Monday, November 15th, 2021, and I'm going to continue my analysis of this draft of the new NCAA Constitution that was put out on November 8th of 2021. And in the last episode, we talked about the values, really. It was about basic purposes and values. And we looked at a compare and contrast between the current constitution and the proposed constitution and the amendments. We're going to move now into what I think is really the meat and potatoes of this constitutional makeover. And I think the driving purpose behind the initiative to form the Constitution Committee and to really change the power structure, or at least to be more honest about it. And I said in the last episode that so much of what's happening here is really just an acknowledgement of dynamics that have been playing out behind the scenes for really 30 years now with the Power Five football interests, the big-time powerful football interests whether it was the BCS or now the Power Five and the college football playoff, whatever version of big-time college football was in place, they fought like heck to get complete control over the college sports marketplace and uh, NCAA governance. And they've been successful on both counts. And this is all the product of the financial independence that big-time football achieved in the Board of Regents suit that was decided in 1984. It was an antitrust suit that basically struck down the NCAA's monopoly over televised football, which it held from 1951 to 1981. And the post-Board of Regents world really has been all about big-time football. That is still true today. So a lot of these changes, when we look at this shift in power and the transfer of power from the quote-unquote association, the broader NCAA, and I would say really the NCAA national office, when you have this shift of power and authority to the divisions, and the divisions are now serving some of the purposes or many of the purposes that the association and the national office has historically served. Some of that, I think, is really a codification of these dynamics that have existed behind the scenes. And I've talked quite a bit about that in the Prisoner Dilemma episodes and also in my Pay for Play series. And I'm going to talk about that on the backside of this analysis of the new Constitution. And that brings me to another point. This is really going to be an exercise in a description more than analysis. So in terms of roadmapping how I want to talk about this Constitution Committee and what I think is happening here and some of the issues that it raises that really are unresolved right now, and they're substantial issues. But what I want to do in the next couple of episodes is really just go through the new constitution, this draft constitution, and look at what it contains and at the broad brush level, identify important issues. This is going to be largely a descriptive exercise more than an analytical one. And then I'm going to move into more of an analysis on the backside of the descriptive component. And I'm going to look at some of the important questions that come up here. And that's going to include the future of amateurism. What does amateurism look like? And that ties into the antitrust implications of this transfer of power. And we're going to go back to Austin and that injunction that Judge Wilkin issued that transferred authority from the NCAA to the conferences under the theory that there would be competition among and between the Power Five conferences. And that's an important component of this whole transfer of power. And then what is the role of Congress going to be going forward? And all those things, the future of amateurism, the antitrust, litigation, and then the congressional campaign. What does that all look like? And those three things tie together. And, and that's really, I think, the most important thing to keep our eye on. And then the infractions and enforcement process is so, so important. And we're going to get to that. There is a component of this new constitution that, in my judgment, essentially eliminates the national enforcement and infractions 
process through the Committee on Infractions and then the appeals process. And that goes down to the divisional level, and that raises all kinds of questions. And then we're going to really take a, a good hard look at what the new Division One boards are going to look like. And that ties into this transformation committee that was formed in late October through the Division One Board of Directors. And I'm going to do a separate episode on that, and that's really important. And then we're also going to look at whether there's any meaningful role for the presidents. I think the answer to that is no, but I, I think it's important to talk about why. And also to tie that in to the last three decades that have been built around presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics. And as I have said many times, that is really has been a failed effort. I think this is an acknowledgement of that. And then the other thing that I think is important here, and this ties into those first issues of the future of amateurism, antitrust, and Congress, is why the Power Five are staying under the NCAA umbrella. And that was really the focus of the, those episodes after the Austin oral argument and that exchange between Justice Sotomayor and Seth Waxman, the NCAA's attorney. Justice Sotomayor asked Waxman a question about the comparison of the interest between the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, and he couched it in terms of this prisoner's dilemma. Do they cooperate or do they, do they turn on each other? And I think that's still an important component of this new structure. And I think that what a lot of people don't understand is the, is the benefit that the Power Five get from staying under the NCAA umbrella. So this is a win-win for them as I see this. They get to have complete autonomy through this new transfer of power, but they also get these really important protections that, that really belong to the NCAA. And there are, are several really important things that the Power Five get from the NCAA that I think they would lose if they went out and formed their own association. So we'll talk about all that. And in connection with my analysis of both the role of the university presidents going forward and then also what, if any, role the national office will play in infractions and enforcement. I think that at the enforcement staff level, they're fighting for their administrative life. They're fighting for their bureaucratic existence. And under this new constitution, I think that's at risk. And I think that has not been fully resolved yet. That's just a sense that I get. So let's go right to this new constitution. And under the new Article 2 titled Organization, this corresponds to the old Articles 3, 4, and 5 of the old Constitution. And the old Constitution, Article 3, was titled Membership. It talked about association-wide membership requirements. And then old Article 4 is also titled Organization, and it talks about the organization really at the national level, at the association-wide level, and then the duties of the three main Division One boards, the Board of Governors, the Division One Board of Directors, and then the Division One Council. And with the exception of the Board of Governors, the, those divisional bodies are up for grabs now, I think, on the backside of this transfer to the divisions. And I'm going to talk about that, too, because so much of of this. The, the devil's going to be in the details, and it's impossible to predict what Division One is going to do with its new authority to essentially recraft the entire Division One structure. And I, again, I think that's why this transformation committee in part was put together and why it's so Power Five heavy, and I'm going to talk about that as well. I think I'm going to do a separate episode on this transformation committee to really drill down on the differences between the membership of this committee, the membership of the existing Division I Board of Directors, and then the composition of this Constitutional Committee. I think it's fascinating. And then article, the existing Article 5 goes to the legislative process and uh, the voting requirements and, and opportunities. And I'll just note, in the old Constitution, you had the various interests under the Division One umbrella really mixed and matched, and they were cross-referenced. And then there's this bylaw 20, which talks about divisional membership. And although it technically addresses divisions two and three, which are completely irrelevant to this discussion, as I said in the last episode, they got what they want. They're not going to be making any changes. They're just off the table. So we're just dealing with division one here. But in bylaw 20 on division one membership, you have the, the details about what the requirements are for the various subdivisions within division one and how many teams that they have to sponsor and what their composition, their basic composition is and how they can move 
between the, the three components of Division One. So all three of those provisions of the old Constitution are really rolled into this new Article Two titled Organization. And the way that this article is organized, it talks about the authorities and the obligations of the institutional stakeholders really categorically in a way that I think makes more sense. But that's a pretty low bar because the existing NCAA constitutional provisions and then this bylaw 20 are almost impossible to comprehend. Under this new article on organization, you basically have five component parts and then there are subparts within some of these broader categories. So first you have the association, that is the NCAA association-wide, the big umbrella and the national office. It also includes the board of governors and the NCAA president. Then you have the divisions and we have the three divisions right now. And within division one, which is the only division that matters, you have basically three subcategories. I'm going to talk a little bit more about when we get to the divisions. And then you have the conferences, which are a subset of the divisions. And then you have the member institutions, which are a subset of the conferences. So we're going big to small. So it's association, big umbrella, all components of college sports, all three divisions, then down to the divisions, the three divisions, then down to the conferences, then to the member institutions. And then there's a final section and category for student athletes. It's very brief, and I don't think it tells us a whole lot, but I think it's there for emphasis. I think it's there to make the statement that, yes, the student athletes are on the radar screen here. They're one of the five big components. So I want to go category by category. Let's start with the association, this big tent. And I'm going to read selected portions and then just identify the areas where I think there is meaningful change and briefly what I think the consequence may be. Again, I'm going to address the the consequences in separate episodes on the back side of this description. So the opening preamble, I guess, under the association says, the membership of the NCAA encompasses public and private institutions and conferences of widely varying mission, size, resources, and opportunities. Accordingly, association-wide governance must reflect these differences through the delegation of authorities and responsibilities to the divisions, conferences, and individual member institutions, except where necessary to promote and maintain the association's core principles. It's not clear from the last episode of my analysis of the basic purposes and, and fundamental principles, what exactly those core principles are and whether they're enforceable, more importantly, whether they are enforceable and have any true value. But I'll just note, in this framing of the NCAA's big tent composition, this structure has existed and been an issue for decades. Really, this goes back to the 1970s. And you have this justification for shifting this authority down from the association to the divisions. But that justification has always been present. And the NCAA is here now only because it's been forced to by external regulatory threats like the federal antitrust litigation, the state legislatures, and then you have some market forces that are really imposing some change here. So then the next provision is the association shall. So this is the association's duties, their responsibilities, and they're specifically enumerated. And this wasn't done this clearly in the prior constitution, but it says the association shall A, conduct all national championships. So I think it's important that this is the first authority that the new constitution identifies. And this goes directly to the NCAA's quest for relevance at the national level after the summer of 2021. And it says, each member in good standing in its division shall be eligible to compete in NCAA championships, assuming it meets applicable association division and conference requirements. The association shall oversee broadcasting, communications, and media rights for all NCAA conducted national championships. So I just want to say on that provision, this really is the sole role that the NCAA is going to serve going forward. It's going to negotiate the media rights contracts and it's going to exploit the March Madness opportunities. It's going to squeeze every nickel it can out of the Division I men's basketball tournament. And then it's going to be responsible for conducting championships. So it keeps its money. It keeps its authority as the party planner for national championships. But that's about it. 
And I just want to say something else about the way that this new constitution talks about the NCAA's right to, exclusive right, to engage in contracts for broadcast media rights for everything except big-time football because they lost that right in Board of Regents. But those responsibilities in the old Constitution were buried in the very back of the NCAA Division I manual, that 451-page Division I manual in the executive regulations. And I talked about how well hidden those were. And under those executive regulations, the NCAA president has the exclusive authority for managing and executing and negotiating all of those broadcast media deals or any licensing deals, any value that the NCAA can get out of its intellectual property and its television rights, that runs through the NCAA president and these very arcane and back-of-the-book rules. Those authorities and powers and prerogatives are now front and center, and they are constitutional mandates. And that's what that first provision gives you. And then B, under the association's authorities, when requested, by a Board of Governors recognized committee, the Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports develop and promulgate guidance, rules, and policies based on consensus of the medical, scientific, sports medicine, and sports governing communities as appropriate for student, athlete, physical, and mental health, safety, and performance. The association shall make available such guidance, rules, and policies to all members. And on that, I just want to note that the NCAA in this grand transfer of power and accommodating the Power Five's interests and then relieving itself of responsibilities but keeping its access to the money and negotiating the contracts, the NCAA needed a face for that. They needed a way to put a, a mirage out in front of that obviously money-driven and power-driven dynamic. And they used student-athlete, mental health, and physical safety. But what does this say? It says, when requested by a Board of Governors recognized committee, okay, then the Board of Governors may develop and promulgate guidance. It does say rules, but guidance, rules, and policies. The, the guidance and the policies have no enforceable effect. And there's no enforcement authority through which the association can compel any member institution to adopt any guidance and policies. And as to rules, I'm not sure what that means. If the, if the NCAA were to put in rules into place after this constitution is passed, it's going to have to be done at the divisional level, I think. I'm not sure the Board of Governors can do that because it has no enforcement jurisdiction. This is just another red herring. And they're just splashing around in the public relations water here, trying to create enough distraction that the rest of this power play doesn't look as obvious as it really is, at least to me. So again, and, and then that stuff is, as we're going to see in just a minute, is shoved down to the institutional level and they put their ultimate responsibility on that, on the institutions, which, again, I think it properly resides there. This is just bloviation at NCAA and the national office. And then C, promote gender equity, diversity, and inclusion, blah, blah, blah. I mean, same old stuff. And then the next thing that it shall do, the association, it should shall establish the rules for sports competitions and participation. And that's really the role it should be playing. And it should be the only role that it plays is to provide the rules and then some national agreement on the basic rules of the game. Th then we'll get back to uh, the money and the NCAA and the association is going to have the sole responsibility to manage the association's intellectual property and maintain historical and statistical records of the association. When you're reading through this list, you get the sense that they're getting back to some of the more ministerial things that you might expect of a national governing authority in the athletics area. A lot of high school associations uh, have the similar emphases. But now all of a sudden we're back to intellectual property. That intellectual property has enormous is a value and NCAA has amassed extraordinary intellectual property, trademarks and logos and copyrights over a holy host of intellectual property that they sell and license for billions of dollars. And all of that revolves around men's basketball. Most of it revolves around men's basketball. Oh, and by the way, they're going to maintain historical and statistical records. <laughs> That's nice. And then they're going to be ambassadors to the Olympic and Paralympic committees. And then this is an important addition. And I talked about this in the last episode. 
And this is that one that relates to the association's deference to regulating bodies in any investigation or sanctions against school or school representatives for conduct that violates outside laws, real world laws, but also may implicate or potentially violate NCAA principles. Okay, so we're back to the Baylor case with Title IX. We're back to the UNC case with academic fraud. And basically what this provision says is that the NCAA is off the hook for that. We're not in that business anymore. And we'll let the outside authorities uh, do their good work. And then if there's something that we need to comment on, we may issue a censure. We may make a public comment, but they are out of that business because they didn't bother to pass organic legislation that gave them that authority. They only regulate in areas that go to fixing the price of labor for revenue producing athletes and managing the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. That's it. That's all the NCAA cares about. That's all the Power Five care about. So now we're on to the Board of Governors. So what is the Board of Governors going to do? And in many ways, it's going to have some of the same functions. The Board of Governors didn't really have a lot of a substantive authority, but it had this sort of residual authority to do what's best for the entire association. And I think they were put in uh, some tough spots here because they had to make some tough decisions, particularly when it related to some of the, this tension between the values the association claims to hold and their inability to enforce them because they don't bother to legislate in them. So I'm just going to go through a couple of the things that I think are important that have been retained, and I'm not really sure there's a new added authority. But at the very beginning, it's important to note that the Board of Governors, the composition of it is changing. And so the very first component of the Board of Governors provision is composition of the board shall include with due attention to diversity and gender equity, right? The following members and Basically, it's, there are going to be four members from Division One to include at least one institution president or chancellor and one conference commissioner. And then we have another member from the Division Two President's Council, a member from the Division Three President's Council, two independent members not currently employed or compensated by any member institution, but apparently they could have had a prior relationship with one. And then a graduated student athlete who has not been out more than four years. So you've got nine members and they're replacing a 21-member board. And remember, and this gets to the role of president. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit more when I get to the institutional control provision of the new constitution because under the existing organization principles and the required composition of the board of governors and the division one board of directors they're dominated by university presidents under this new board there is likely to be only one university president or chancellor that's a fundamental change in thinking about who should be in control of intercollegiate sports. And I think it's also important to note that this new board of governors doesn't have that much responsibility because the association-wide responsibilities have been really curtailed and shifted down to the division. So I don't think this is a consequential board, much different from the current board. So then this new provision talks about how the Board of Governors are selected. I don't think that's really important right now, honestly, because of the limited authority that they have. And then they get to the duties and responsibilities. And again, a lot of these align with the current duties and responsibilities. But one is that they provide final approval and oversight of the association's budget. And that is currently in uh, Article 4 of the existing Constitution. And let's see, that includes external audits, enterprise risk management, strategic planning, allocation of assets, and established policies relating to fiduciary responsibility. And then the second thing, the uh, new board of governors, like the old one, will employ the association's president who shall be administratively responsible to the board of governors. And then there is an addition that the job performance needs to be reviewed annually. But this is, again, a insider, cozy relationship that is not an arm's length relationship between the Board of Governors, however formed, and the NCAA president. And the NCAA president, again, does not have any direct responsibilities to the membership or to the divisions or the conferences or the member institutions or the student athletes. Their sole loyalty and relationship is through the Board of Governors. And again, that I think is a problem because the membership really doesn't have an adequate voice 
in selecting or evaluating the NCAA president. And then monitor for compliance with all these fluffy principles. And then another one that I think is beefed up a little bit, and this is important because under the old constitution, the Board of Governors had the sole authority to make decisions on litigation, to sue or to settle. And they were really involved in that at the Board of Governors level, much more so than I think the public understood. And we have to remember that this antitrust litigation that has played out just in the last year has had enormous influence on the future of college sports. And what's happening in this California case, the House case out in Judge Wilkins' courtroom, potentially may have a, a big impact on, on what the NCAA's antitrust liability may look like. And I'll talk more about that when I talk about the antitrust issues on the backside of this. But the Board of Governors will, in consultation with the leadership of the divisions, adopt and implement legal strategy, association risk mitigation, and government relations and policy matters that affect the association as a whole, which means that the Board of Governors and Mark Emmert are going to be the point people on litigation strategy, including who they hire, whether they pursue appeals. And that was a big issue in Austin because the Supreme Court really was saying, why the hell did you appeal this case? And then the risk mitigation goes to trying to continue to seek antitrust immunity and preemption and all the things that they tried to get starting in 2020 through the Senate and government relations and policy matters that affect the association as a whole. Read, the NCAA's lobbyists are going to be running wild. That's not going to change. They're going to be running wild in Washington, D.C., and all their influence peddling through their high-priced lawyers, both on the litigation side and the lobbying side, and then their public relations people are going to be full steam ahead to get as many protections and immunities as they can get from Congress. In that sense, the NCAA's interests and the Power Five interests are clearly aligned. And I think you're going to see those efforts continue. And again, I'll talk more about that. Then the next duty is to provide the Board of Governors meeting agendas in advance to the chair of the Division One Board of Directors. And I think that's a bit of a jab at Mark Emmert. And I think there may have been some behind-the-scenes criticism on how these agendas were put together and stuff that was shoved through. And then, let's see, they can create an executive committee or any other committees or bodies to fulfill the duties and responsibilities of the board. And that may seem ministerial, but that's important to the extent that you can concentrate decision-making among interests that are smaller than the Board of Governors, and then through the committee structure, giving committee authorities and tasks that may wind up inuring to the benefit of a subset of the NCAA's interests. And that would likely be for the benefit of the Power Five. Let's see. And that's really about it in terms of the duties. Then we turn to the duties of the NCAA president. Again, all these are under the rubric of the association. So we had the association as an association, then we had the board of governors, and now we have the NCAA president. And it's uh, fairly brief. And let's just see what they are. Number one, the number one duty and responsibility of the NCAA president. And I guess I should say this as well. There was nothing in the old constitution that specifically identified the duties of the NCAA president in the constitution. The only reference to the NCAA president in the old constitution was that the NCAA president was employed by the Board of Governors and reported only to the Board of Governors. The only authorities that the NCAA president had regarding the negotiation of broadcast media rights and putting together contracts and having the final say on that was buried in the very back of the NCAA manual, page 430 or something. I don't know. But now it's number one. It is numero uno to administer the national office to implement directions of the Board of Governors and divisional leadership bodies. Number two, enter into, administer, and enforce all association contracts, including but not limited to media rights and revenue producing agreements and initiatives of the Board of Governors and divisional leadership bodies. So there you have it. National office, and then you have all these contracts, and that, all, of course, means March Madness money, and that ties into running national championships as an essential constitutional function of the NCAA. And then there is this kind of broad oversight responsibility. It says oversee and direct regulatory and disciplinary processes. It's not quite clear how that ties into any 
national office and infractions and enforcement authorities. I don't read it that way. I think that's all delegated down to the divisions, but this gives at least some theoretical superseding regulatory and disciplinary authority that the president has. And then well, that's about it. But it's interesting because those duties and responsibilities appear nowhere in the existing NCAA constitution. So now we're on to the divisions. So we're done with the association. Now we are on to the divisions. And this is really important. And it's also fairly brief, which again, raises all kinds of questions about how the details are going to be worked out here because the divisions have complete authority to reconstruct division one. I'm just, again, I'm just going to speak in terms of division one. Division one can be completely restructured here and you have hundreds of pages of dense material in the NCAA division one manual right now that the division one leaders may have the authority to completely rethink and reconstitute. So let me just tell you how this constitution frames the new division's authorities. It says, number one, each division shall have independent authority to organize itself consistent with the principles of the association. Each division is authorized to structure itself as it deems necessary, including creation of subdivisions or creation of a new division and determination of membership eligibility for these new organizations, including the role of conferences and it says new divisions or subdivisions must be self-funded by the originating division. That's a broad authority. And I want to compare that to what existed in the prior constitution. And a good example of that is this autonomy legislation that the Power Five advocated for. They threatened to leave the NCAA altogether if they didn't get it. This was during the O'Bannon litigation. There was a lot of fear and uncertainty about what might happen in that case. And the Power Five wanted to get ahead of the game a little bit. And they uh, lobbied for a separate classification under the NCAA umbrella within Division One, but in order to get the authorities that they wanted, because they exceeded the existing compensation limits at the time, they had to get an association-wide permission. That was a big process, and that 2014 hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee was really Mark Emmert's mission on behalf of the Power Five to lay the foundation for the autonomy legislation and classification and to get buy-in from the rest of the association. But under this new language, the Power Five don't have to do that. They don't have to go through all that BS. They can just form whatever subdivision they want. They can create an entirely new division within the Division One structure. And I think that's likely to happen. And you're going to have this further separation out of the big time powerful football interest. And what that's going to look like is impossible to say right now, but we'll get some information, I think, as this transformation committee that the Division One Board of Directors set up begins to talk a little bit more about the specifics of its work and, and where it's headed. And let's see. Then number two, each division shall set standards for academic eligibility. So that would wipe out a good part of the NCAA Division One manual. And that's an important transfer of authority. Number three, each division shall determine its its own governing structure and membership. And that ties into the very first provision. So again, this is broad authority. There's not a lot of specifics offered here. And again, the devil will be in the details, but that is a, a really important transfer of authority. Number four, each division shall establish regulations to ensure consistency among member institutions regarding the use of a student's name, image, or likeness and to prevent exploitation, blah, blah. That's the nil provision. And basically it is saying all of that's going to be managed at the divisional level, not at the national NCAA level. And there are antitrust issues there that I'll talk more about when we look at antitrust on the backside of uh, a look at this constitution. But you know, Neil, the name, image, and likeness regulations were always supposed to be divisional. And Emmert jumped in at the last minute to make it a national office issue. And it was a mess. And I've talked a lot about that. But this, at least structurally, doesn't really change that much. And it'll be interesting to see if the divisions come up with any institutional policies or just leave things as they are. And I think, again, both the NCAA and the Power Five would be very happy to get a preemption provision from Congress, which would basically nullify all these state laws. And I think that a lot of the Power Five schools are looking at ways to enhance their competitive position in recruiting and maybe in the transfer market, but I think they'd be okay giving up the whole nil issue just to get it off the table. It just makes life easier. Then the fifth authority, 
that the divisions have. Each division shall determine the sports in which they run a national championship and the access criteria for participation. So that is important and the national office isn't dictating that to them. And then let's see, it says authorities not explicitly enumerated in this constitution for association-wide governance are reserved to the divisions or at their discretion to subdivisions, conferences, and individual institutions. That's this constitution's version of the U.S. Constitution's 10th Amendment. So if it's not reserved to the federal government, it, it goes to the states. And that's kind of what this provision does is comical to me because in the NCAA and Power Five's campaign for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation, and you had these Republican senators carrying their water, they were tossing that the 10th Amendment right in the trash can, and they were going for Bernie Sanders' big government and a federal takeover of college sports governance and a federalization of the NCAA's compensation limits. Again, you can't make this stuff up. All right, number seven, each division shall determine the policies under which conferences are formed and operated. Each division shall oversee the operation of its member conferences and their adherence to the principles and provisions of this constitution. And then let's see, that's really it. One of the things that isn't addressed in my judgment, I think it they bump up against it a bit, but they don't really answer it. And that is whether or not any of these new divisions are going to be required as the current constitution does require that there be a minimum number of sports in each division. So in the current structure right now, you really have three components of division one. You have the, what's called the FBS, and those are the big time football schools. You have the power five conferences and then the group of five conferences, and they are in the big time college football sweepstakes. Then you have this next tier, the football championship series, the FCS, which are the football schools that really aren't in the big money game. So you have this lower tier and then you have a, a third separation out in division one. And those are the schools that really don't have football or don't emphasize football. I would say that this is more of a basketball related component and separation from the rest of division one. So you have this three interests sort of playing against each other. But within these three subsets of Division One, and that's where a lot of this conversation is going to be, but I think most of it's going to be in the FBS with this transformation committee and what the big time football and basketball products are going to look like going forward. But you're going to have some discussion about who's in or out of the FBS, whether there's going to be an entirely new classification and, and all that stuff. But within these three existing strata of Division One, there are a minimum sport requirements that I think reflect Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model and participation opportunities. And they're expressed in terms of sports that are male sports and female sports. And that obviously reflects the Title IX implications of access to opportunities. So at the FCS and the sort of basketball-oriented separations, those two classifications have to have at least 14 varsity sports in order to qualify for membership. The FBS, the heavy hitters, the power five, the group of five, have to have 16. That's the minimum. And you, they can go above that. And we talked about the Stanford case in prior episodes. And they had, I think, 32 or 33 sports. And they wound up cutting some of them during COVID. But you can go above that. But you can't go below. And this new constitution doesn't specifically address that. And that's going to be important because in this constitutional survey that the Constitution Committee did, there wasn't much support for increasing participation opportunities. And the NCAA has historically held that up as, as a value, you know, that we are in the business of providing opportunities that's consistent with our education nonprofit mission. And we take this money from football, men's basketball in order to fund those downstream opportunities. That exists only in the, really the FBS division, that thinking, because they have the luxury of having self-sustaining athletics departments from revenue from football, men's basketball. But when you look at the polling, of in-system stakeholders, including people in the diversity and inclusion uh, stakeholder group and senior women's administrators. So from a gender standpoint, from an equity, institutional equity standpoint, there wasn't huge support for quote unquote participation opportunities in this survey. And there are a lot of schools or conferences that feel like that requirement is burdensome and that they should be able to go beneath that. In fact, during COVID, there were schools, mostly group of five schools, 
that had less resources to, to throw at non-revenue sports saying, we want a waiver, we want legislative relief, temporary relief from this minimum sport requirement. And that was a, a hot potato. But the, the issue there was really a philosophical values-based one is going below these minimum thresholds going to compromise participation opportunities or have a negative impact on women's sports. And that is not addressed. And I think that could be an interesting point of contention as discussions move forward with a view towards having a final constitution. I think in December, they want to have a final version for ratification in January. And that's a good segue into the next heading. And those are the conferences. So we have the association, then we have the divisions. Now we're on to the conferences. And for the most part, the structure of the conference duties and requirements really flow from whatever the division set. So the conferences are subsets within the division and then within the NCAA. But there's an interesting provision here, and it says, multi-sport conferences must meet all of the specified divisional membership criteria, including sports sponsorship minimums and regular season competition requirements. So you have some awareness of this minimum sponsorship issue, sports sponsorship issue, when they're talking about the conference structure, but there's nothing about that specifically in the rules for the division. So that's interesting. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. But again, even though there's a reference to minimum sports offerings. They don't talk numbers here. And then the new constitution includes some things that conferences must do. And one is adhere to the principles and provisions of this constitution and those established by their division, including the conduct of athletics events. So again, that just reflects what exists now. Then they bring in name, image, and likeness. And they say each conference shall maintain written policies for its licensing, marketing, sponsorship, advertising, and other commercial agreements that may involve use of a student athlete's name, image, or likeness. Each conference shall provide such policies to student-athletes and to their respective division. And then, let's see, the next requirement is that conferences shall comply completely and promptly with the rules and regulations governing the enforcement process and shall cooperate fully in the process as a condition of membership in the association. And as we're going to discuss when we get to the infractions and enforcement process, that's going to be done at the divisional level as I read this constitution. So that's, that's really about it for the conferences. And again, not a ton of new stuff there. Now we're on to the member colleges and universities. This is the fourth of the five stakeholder groups under this organization article of the new constitution. And so for member colleges and universities, it says, number one, all members of the NCAA must ensure that student athletes are in good standing. Let's see, provide documentation demonstrating compliance with the division's academic program. A lot of this stuff just relates to complying with what is set forth at the divisional level and then at the conference level. And then there's an inclusion here that I think is important, and I believe that it's new. I haven't found anything like this in the existing NCAA rulebook, but I, I could have missed it because that thing is a beast. But there's a provision that says establish an administrative structure that provides independent medical care for student athletes, affirms the autonomous authority of primary athletics health care providers, and implements NCAA guidance rules and policies based on consensus with the medical, scientific, sports, medicine, and sport governing communities. Schools shall provide care consistent with prevailing consensus. The physicians and healthcare staff at each member institution have has the ultimate decision-making authority over the health and welfare of student athletes. Uh, it says member institutions shall be responsible for the oversight and administration of coach, administrator, and staff education on relevant student-athlete physical and mental health topics, prevailing consensus for engaging student-athletes about physical and mental health, and how to most effectively support student-athlete physical and mental health, and then appropriate resources. And all of that sounds great, but I don't see anything here that creates an enforceable mandate. 
And again, the devil will be in the details. And when the NCAA talks about this stuff and when it's medical people talk about this stuff and they have a whole staff and they get paid a bunch of money, it looks like that part of the NCAA bureaucracy is going to stick around. But when they talk about these health and safety issues, they speak in terms of best practices and recommendations and guidelines and policies. But they have not implemented any legislation to make uh, give those the force of law and make them enforceable. And that was a big issue during COVID. And that's been one of the points of emphasis for the advocates of the Athletes' Bill of Rights that was proposed by uh, Senators Booker and Blumenthal in the Senate. They want some teeth on health and safety issues. And so this emphasis on mental health and physical safety is nice. And some of these recommendations make sense and should always have been in place. But this is nothing new. And we still don't have, at least not in this draft, an enforcement process that would hold these schools accountable. There's been pushback against that because schools have been saying it's going to be too expensive and it's going to put them out of business. And I don't think that the Power Five can make that case. Maybe a, a lower level school can make that case if this were an association-wide requirement, but it won't be. These decisions will be made at the divisional level. And I don't think that lower level Division One schools or HBCUs that are competing in Division One are going to be saddled with draconian health and safety expenses. I don't see that happening. I think there will be some type of means testing. And there's means testing in the Athletes' Bill of Rights. That's a discussion I think that's out there that we're going to have to pay attention to. So let's see, that's pretty much it for the member institutions. And basically, it's also a requirement that each institution shall have certain categories of representatives at the institutional level, including the faculty athletics representative that already exists, the, the senior woman administrator that already exists. But wouldn't this be a great time to just completely eliminate that title or change it? Because it just is so 1970s condescending. Number three, athletics healthcare administrator. That position already exists. And then the athletics diversity and inclusion designee. That category also exists already. And all of those categories of institutional representatives participated in this survey, this Constitution Committee survey. And some of the results coming from those stakeholders was really interesting, particularly on participation opportunities and the role of university presidents. And then let's see, it says member institutions shall comply completely and promptly with the rules and regulations governing the enforcement process and shall cooperate fully in that process as a condition of membership in the association. But again, I think that's going to be run through the divisional process, the divisional structure now, all infractions and enforcement issues. Then the final category of the five stakeholder groups under this organization section of the new constitution is student athletes. And there's really not much here. It, it does say that the student athletes will have a vote on the NCAA Board of Governors and the Division One Board of Directors, and then these divisions two and three bodies. But that student voice is really less effective now because the Board of Governors doesn't have that much authority with all this delegation down to the divisions. Theoretically, a seat, a voting seat on the Division One Board of Directors would give the athletes a, a meaningful voice, but we don't know what that board's going to look like going forward. And again, the devil's going to be in the details in this Division One Transformation Committee that was set up through the Division One Board of Directors is going to make that decision. And we just don't know what that's going to look like. And then there's a second provision. There are only two provisions that apply to student athletes. And it says that the faculty athletics representative shall serve as the ombudsperson to whom student athletes can report any action, activity, or behavior by anyone associated with athletics programs inconsistent with this constitution's principle of student athlete health and well-being. The faculty athletics representative in their capacity as ombudsperson shall report directly to the member institution's president or chancellor. A couple things on that. First of all, under the current definition of the faculty athletics representatives, they're called FARs. The FAR people, the FARs, they, their loyalties as expressed in the NCAA manual right now lie primarily with the institution. And a lot of people have observed outside commentators, I think that the uh, authors of Unwinding Madness made this observation. This was uh, Zimbalist and Gurney and Lopiano. I think I pronounced those correctly. But they say that in practice, the, the faculty members who wind up in these far positions are really friendly to the institutional athletics interests. So they are supposed to be this liaison between the 
academic side and the athletic side, but their primary concern here is not to advocate on behalf of the athletes. They are to try to massage whatever issues come up in a way that really aligns with the institutional interest. So having an FAR act as an ombudsman really isn't that effective. Maybe there should be some external advocate that is completely untethered to the interests of the athletics department or the university as a whole, but who has an understanding of how the universities work and can be an advocate, an effective advocate to raise these issues with some sense of neutrality. But again, I don't see that happening. I, I think that the relationship between the student athletes and the institutions isn't really changing that much. And the basic relationship, at least the revenue producing athletes, I just don't see this as a huge step forward. And it's a convenient smokescreen for all these other issues that are driven almost exclusively by power, money, and competitive advantage. And that's what this comes down to. So with that, I'm going to close out this episode, and, and we've really done a lot here going through really what I think are, are the meat and potato provisions of this new constitution. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about the remaining three provisions, and that's going to be this Article 3 on finance. I've talked a little bit about that, and that really just acknowledges and puts into the force of constitutional law the existing budget allocation so that all the downstream beneficiaries are happy. And then we have the Article 4, Rules Compliance and Accountability. And that is new because there's nothing this specific that's contained in the old constitution. And this goes to the heart of the future of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement program at the national office level. And all these people who have just been screwing athletes for decades. And the discussion of the infractions and enforcement process under this new constitution is also going to, we're going to need an asterisk next to that as well, because the devil's going to be in the details there. It remains to be seen if the divisions have to put together their own enforcement and infractions process, and particularly in division one, what does it look like? What is the structure going to look like? What kind of people are going to be staffing the, that process? And what are the rules going to be? And what's the scope of their authority? And what due process, if any, will be provided in this new system? And those are really unanswerable at this point. And then let's see, we have uh, Article 5, amendments to the Constitution. That's not going to take but a couple of minutes. And then we have the last article, institutional control. And this is where I think I want to land when it comes to the role of university presidents and chancellors and how they historically have been involved with college sports and then how the reform movements have pulled them into the captain's chair. And what's happened since then, since 1991, that really doesn't paint a very flattering picture for university presidents and chancellors, but you still have a parade wave to that structure. And I think this may have to do in part with some influence from the Knight Commission and maybe some other external groups. And I think that when you look at the results of this constitutional survey, you see that university presidents themselves, the paltry number who bothered to even fill out the 20-minute survey, they said, yeah, we want to be in the captain's chair, but I don't think that this new constitution really promotes that. And I think you're going to see a clear movement away from that. And it's going to be about the people who are really running college sports right now. It's going to be the conference commissioners. It's going to be the athletics directors, maybe a very small handful of power five university presidents who understand the business. And of course, the empty chairs and all of this fluffy constitutional discussion. And those are the broadcast media behemoths, the ESPNs and the CBSs and the Turners and the Disneys and all of the corporate purchasers of the big time college sports business products. And that means big time football and big time men's basketball. So we'll talk all about that, but just want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the big amateurism monologues. Take care.